All right, we'll put the questions up on the screen so you can kind of see them. And then Quaid has consented to bring the microphone around. Not every question will I necessarily ask for your input, but certainly uh, some of these I think you guys have some great insight into. And so uh, we'll be happy to sort of have you give your thoughts and answers. So the very first question, uh, do you have any suggestions on how to bridge the generation gap between me and my parents and even grandparents when it comes to social issues? All right. I'm going to guess that some of you have some experience with this and maybe have a good answer to it. You, you understand the question, right? So when we're talking about social issues, I'm sure uh, things like even how do you approach uh, talking about LGBT issues. Uh, I know there's more letters, but I can't remember the order ever, so um, you guys know what I'm talking about. And, and maybe you just have, a, have trouble talking to your parents or even grandparents about how, how should we think about this? How should we feel about this? And so, what thoughts? Anybody have any thoughts to offer to that? I mean, I certainly have an answer that, that I'm ready to give, but I'm happy to hear what, what you guys have to say, too. Too tough? Go ahead, Gabe, up here in front. Oh. I know something about obstinate grandparents, and I just say that, it, that you can't always have a dialogue with somebody, but you can always put your views out there and sort of get, and sort of get them to be exposed to something different than just what they're comfortable with. Okay. I think that's probably a good start. Um, I will just tell you, is there anybody else want to make a comment? You can think about it a little bit. As I thought about this question, uh, my first thought was how thankful I am that I get to talk to people like you a lot because it gives me the perspective of people who are a lot younger than I am. I also have three children who are in their 20s, which certainly helps to have conversations with them about the way things are. And, and, and I think maybe the first thing I'll just offer to all of you is to be patient with your parents and grandparents because until you've walked in the same shoes, and it goes both ways, them in your shoes and you in their shoes, you can't really understand how things were when um, they were growing up, when they were hearing uh, the way things are in the world and, and how you're supposed to react to those things. Um, and, and so you have to understand for generations like mine and the generation above me, there's a learning curve. Uh, there's a learning curve that you probably already are ahead of that curve because of the way that you've grown up and the things that you've had to think about and talk about uh, that, that your parents and, and especially grandparents probably never had to think of. Uh, so my other advice is simply to find uh, common ground, I think, is a good way to do it, and that allows you to come at this from a, an angle of respect. Like, you certainly want to respect the wisdom that your parents and grandparents might bring to this topic, but then also asking for them to understand and respect the way you've, under, the way you've come to understand issues and, and what it means to truly love someone. I think in the end, it comes down to this. I, I think the generation gap comes to this. My generation and probably those that came before me were really taught well what the truth of God's word is and how to speak that truth. What we maybe weren't taught very well is what it means to speak the truth in love. 
right? What, what does it mean to be loving as you present the truth to other people? Uh, and so my challenge to your generation, because I think you guys get way more than my generation and those above me, you understand the love part of it. And that's, that's great because I actually think that's the most important place to start is with love. Because if you don't start with love, you might never get a chance to present the truth. And so starting with loving all people like Jesus loves all people is the best way to, to begin. But at some point, and this is my challenge to you, you have to figure out ways to ultimately bring the truth of God's word forward too. Uh, we want to love all people as God loves them and as Jesus loves them, but we also love the truth of God's word and, and both are important. But what you have to teach your parents and grandparents is how to love people. And what you can maybe learn from your parents and grandparents is how do you also speak the truth? And so together, if we can figure out both. And I will just submit this to you. I think it's one of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to find a way to love people and yet present the truth of God's word to them. And so that's your goal always. All right, other thoughts about that? Otherwise, that's pretty much what I have. Luke, go ahead in the back. Pastor, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more on the ways that older generations aren't so good at the love part. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think that the, the, the goal often is, and, and I can't speak for everybody, but I know the schooling that I had, uh, both growing up, going to Lutheran grade schools, going to Lutheran high school, uh, the, the emphasis was definitely placed on what's the truth of God's word. And it became, I suppose, ultimately more about being right about what God teaches in his word than being understanding that not everyone uh, has full understanding what the truth of God's word is. And so being right oftentimes, um, well, I think it ultimately pushes, at least to an extent, love away from the equation because you're concerned about being right and other people living the correct way and living according to God's word and love can sort of be left behind. And I think that was pretty common uh, in, in my experience and in other people that I've talked to as well. Does that help? Thank you for that clarification. Donovan. So one more thing to add when it comes to like social issues, we can look at what Jesus did um, and his like 12 guys that followed him around. He had someone who was a zealot, who was a very yep. strong political person to overthrow the government and then also someone who worked for the Romans, a tax collector. And we can look, see what Jesus did and just see the person instead of their, their views and their beliefs first and then everything else can come from there. Yeah, and as many people have said, you know, as much as I'd love to think that if Jesus came back to earth to be here, to, to live here like he came the first time uh, and he hung out with the same people that he, that he hung out with the first time he was here, um, would I be one of those people? And I, I, don't, I don't think it's wrong for me to say probably not. I, I think Jesus was interested far more in people who um, needed, needed the truth of his word. Not that I don't need that. I obviously certainly do. But he didn't go to the people who were in the church, right, that, that, he, already, that, that he already knew and had. He went to people that, that needed to hear the, the message of salvation. And I think there's something to learn from that, too. Good, thank you. All right, number two. Ooh, there it is. Does saying swear words casually without thinking it is a bad thing negatively affect our faith in Jesus? All right. 
Yeah, language is kind of a big deal, I suppose. And I would guess, unless you're way different than me, the people that you surround yourself with, the things you watch, the things you listen to, are certainly going to have an effect on the way that you speak, right? And so if you surround yourself with people or um, music or movies that, that might give you the wrong idea about what's normal speech, uh, that might probably creep into your life. Um, I think it's easy when you hear everybody talking in a certain way. And maybe we should, I suppose, identify, uh, I know the word swear is used and that's fine. That's kind of how we, we think of it. Um, what God actually says in his word is that, that cursing, which is calling down uh, curses in God's name ultimately, misusing the name of the Lord your God, which is the second commandment. Swearing is more the idea of, of calling God as a witness to something that, that you are promising but I think I understand the question to mean, well, where does foul language fit into the whole picture, right? What people would call off-color language or something that might be acceptable in some circles and, and not in others. And, and the best passage I could find ultimately comes from Matthew chapter 5. It's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where Jesus simply says this, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything else comes from the evil one. And I think there's a warning there to be careful in how you speak I'm not going to tell you that this word is wrong or that word is wrong. We know what, what is and that's using God's name in, in, a, in a way that is not uh, according to his word and his will. The rest of language, when you think about it, I think you have to consider the impression that you're giving to other people about who you are and who you represent. And that's what I think Jesus is speaking about in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Uh, we don't have to spice up our speech or flower it up with, with words that make our, make our, our comments seem more forceful. Uh, and I think it, it, it often, it, it might be a challenge, I think, to our faith when those words creep into our hearts and minds and then come off our lips as well. All right, I, that one was pretty quick, but I'll take any thoughts if somebody has them. Art, please, in the back. And Yeah, I'm going to take that one step further, Art, okay? All of those sins are already forgiven because Jesus went to a cross and said, it is finished. Uh, and and that's, that's the beauty of, of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, right? Um, I, you know, I sit up here in front and I get to speak to you on every Sunday and every Sunday I marvel that God lets me do that because I can tell you that not everything that has come out of my mouth in my lifetime has been wholesome speech. And so the forgiveness of Jesus is huge because I need it just as much as anybody else does and what Jesus did on the cross covers all of those sins. All right, very good. Thanks for that, Art. Number three, how can I evangelize but like chill, not like in your face evangelize to peers that have grown up non-religious or traumatized by the Christian church? Yeah, did I read that? Okay, like I said, <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, I, I do understand the gist of this question and I, and I would like to focus especially on the last part. I think we all know that in our world today, when you use the word Christian, it means a lot of different things to a lot of people. And to some people, Christian is a very positive word and it brings very positive uh, ideas and, 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 and thoughts to someone's mind. But I think you also know there's a pretty good segment of people in our world that when they hear the word Christian, they think, 
not so good things and it brings up bad memories for them or traumatizing experiences. And, and so I think the idea behind the, the question is really good. And uh, I'll just tell you this, our staff has been walking through a book called Speaking of Jesus. And the, the gist of the book and the beauty of the book is simply to make everything that you do about Jesus and not about what denomination you are or what, um, what Christianity is and all kinds of doctrine, but can we start with Jesus? Can you just start with saying to people, I know I don't know the answers to all of your questions, but here's what I do know. I know the love of Jesus. I know how much Jesus loves us because I know what he did, that he went to a cross and that's where he paid for the sins of the whole world. And I, and I think that's the way to not make it like um, in-your-face evangelism. Who doesn't want to hear that they're loved? You know, and, and I think if you just start with that, boy, you know, can I tell you that, can I tell you what I know? I know I'm loved. I know I'm loved because the Bible tells me that that's how, that's how Jesus demonstrated his love is by, by giving up himself. And I, and I think that, that, that's, that tends to take a lot of the sting out of all kinds of other preconceived notions that people might have about Christians or Christianity if you just look for your opening to talk about about Jesus. And what I'm really hoping and praying for is that this weekend, I know some of you are signed up for our Everyone Outreach, is that that's something that will be, uh, will come through really, really quickly uh, in that, in that workshop and just learning how to, to, to represent Jesus in a way that that's positive uh, and, and doesn't bring those bad memories back. I don't know, 1 Peter 3 verse 15 is one of my favorite verses when it comes to this. Uh, Peter says, In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. And then you're ready for these words. Kind of goes back to a previous question. But do this with gentleness and respect. Um, our, our goal in speaking to people is not to get them to know what we know, to make them like us, but simply to present Jesus to them uh, and let let Christ take care of the rest. All right, thoughts about number three? All right. Oh, Delaney, right here. Go ahead. I think a really easy way to not be in your face is when someone says, what do you have going on the rest of your day? If it's a Wednesday and you're coming here, be honest about it and don't say like, oh, I have a meeting or I'm meeting up with some friends. Like, oh, I'm going to church or, you know, like there's ways that you can incorporate what you are truly doing and how you live your life into everyday conversation without being like shouting down the street, Jesus loves you, which is a great thing to do. But that's like the chill versus in your face, I guess. But yeah, no, but but I, I mean, you have to start somewhere, right? And so... Just the, the idea that this is who you are. I was just talking with somebody today who uh, works on campus and um, was just mentioning that he uh, has not done much to hide who he is as a Christian. He has not also pushed his ideas on anybody else, but they know who he is. And he's looking for those opportunities to be able to say something. So he will say to people all the time, if they present a problem in their lives, he'll just say something like, can I, can I pray for you about that? Is it okay if I pray to you or pray for you about that? Uh, and, and just those disarming things like, will somebody really get upset if you say, I'm going to pray for you? I, I don't know. But I think, yeah, what you're saying, Delaney, is really good. Just, just find those subtle ways to say, these are important things. 
All right? Let's move on to question number four. Um, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say if there's one question that I've heard more often than any other question, this is probably right up there. And I think the reason is, I'm guessing the reason is because there's not a, there's not a direct answer in Scripture to know exactly when it's God's plan rather than your plan. Uh, so how can I discern God's plan for me over my own plans? I, I think I always like to start with this. If you're talking about spiritual matters, then, then God's word probably has a lot more to say. So you think about uh, passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Or a, a Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given you as well. But I'm pretty sure this question is coming from okay, uh, now I'm here at UW-Madison or Edgewood College or wherever I am going to school, uh, whatever I'm work, how, wherever I'm working, and how do I know that that's what God wants me to be doing? And I'm going to guess that some of you have experienced this. You came into college thinking, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. This is going to be my major, only to find out maybe a couple semesters in or maybe even the first semester in, that there were some really hard, hard classes and you didn't really like that topic or subject as much as you thought and you end up switching your major. And so then the, the panic is, did I misunderstand God's will for my life that I went this way and, and God redirected me to another path? And my answer to that is every single one of those experiences that you have, God uses as a learning experience. And so as, as God's people, if we think God has plans, right, for us. I love this passage from, uh, from Proverbs 19. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but the Lord's pur- it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so make your plans. Do it prayerfully. Do it using the brain that God has given you. Do it using the, the heart that God has given you too. And then understand that there might be times that you make a decision in your life that, that God will redirect And it doesn't mean that you made a wrong decision, but that God is going to use all the experiences that you had to get you where ultimately he knows he has the best things in store for you. And ultimately, as I ask this question, I I would be remiss if I didn't come back to this. Anytime you're talking about God's plans versus your plans, I think the cross is the best place to start because there's where you see how much God loves you. There's where you see beyond a shadow of a doubt That whatever plans God has for you are always rooted in the fact that he sent his son to take your place. That he sent Jesus to die for you. So you can trust God leading your life because he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all. So how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I can't tell you that you know, you can, you can look into a chapter and verse of the Bible and say, here's the decision that I made, God. Now, how am I sure this is your plan, God, and not mine? I think there's a trial and error thing that sometimes happens in life and I shouldn't even call it error. There's a trial period and God might redirect your life. So can I just ask, just for, out of curiosity, how many people here have changed their major at least one time? Okay, quite a few. Two, any people that have changed their major twice? Okay, we have a few of those too. I won't ask if there's any more. But I think that's pretty good proof that, that maybe when you start college, you're thinking one way and then God says, mm, not so fast, I think I have a better plan for you. And, and I think you probably would all admit that there was at least some learning that came out of the first choice that you made, even if it was just learning that that wasn't the right career path for you, that it was time to go another direction. All right, thoughts about that? 
Oh, all over there, Seth, and over on the left hand, my left-hand side, you're right, Quaid. I feel like with this question, one of the temptations is to tend to feel like you have the ability to override God's plan for you um, and that you're going to somehow miss the boat on it. Um, I keep thinking of stories like Jonah or everything else. God, make sure you end up where you want to be. So feeling like you're going to miss out on God's plan or perfect whatever life for you is not going to happen. He'll get you there eventually. And I remember that whenever I'm feeling like, is this really the best thing should yeah. I have done something different I'm where God wants me to be and this is the best outcome no matter yeah what, I'm doing. what a great comment you know we have this fear of missing out on something or this idea that somehow if we don't know what God's plan for us is that that we're going to miss the good things that God had in store for us and I think about uh, maybe the first one that came to mind as you were describing that is the Apostle Paul being accused, he, he finished his third missionary journey, he comes back to Jerusalem and he, he gets accused of a crime that he, wasn't, that he didn't commit and he gets thrown in, in prison and he waits there through two, two Roman governors uh, as, as he sits wondering what's going on and, and there had to be times where Paul thought, is this really God's plan for me? But ultimately it opened the door for Paul to make an appeal to Caesar and get the gospel to Rome, which was always one of his goals. And it took a little more time than Paul thought, probably close to five years all told. But, but God ultimately had a plan to do that. And I think you can read through all kinds of scripture to see how God redirects the plans that, that people had. And of course, always good comes out of it because that's exactly what God promises. Excellent. All right. Let's go on to question number five. This is kind of a double question. They were two different questions asked by two different people, but but great questions nonetheless. Number five is someone recently finding my faith. How should I go about baptism? Uh, This is one of my favorite questions simply because anybody who wants to be baptized, that's a pretty awesome thing. So um, I'm going to try to follow up with the person who uh, submitted this question because I would love to talk to them more about what the, what the idea behind baptism is, why they would like to be baptized, uh, have them talk to their family and friends and, and, and also just say, this is something that I really desire uh, and, and just, just really pursue um, something that God says brings tremendous blessings into our lives. Uh, I think about uh, Titus chapter 3, that, that it is the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So uh, if you are not baptized and you're thinking about it, I would love to talk to you about it. So come to me, talk to another pastor, talk to somebody uh, who can just encourage you in that way. All right, um, the second one, why do we baptize infants? This is a little bit more, uh, uh, I'll say a little more difficult to answer because if you look through Scripture, you will not find something that specifically says in Scripture, we should baptize infants, and you won't find anything specifically in Scripture that says you should not baptize infants. And so the thought process in, uh, in, in Lutheran circles of why we baptize infants comes down to really ultimately three factors. Uh, number one is that children are born sinful. King David in Psalm 51 says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so whether you think a, a newborn baby is cute or not, what I can tell you from the experience of, well, all three of my children, sorry, Annika, But all three of my children didn't need to be taught how to be sinful. They all figured it out on their own. 
right? Never once did I have to tell them, teach them how to be selfish or pull hair or kick or bite or scratch. That all came naturally, right? And that's what David is saying. I'm sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so that need for baptism is, is present in a, an infant as well. Uh, the second one I would say is when Jesus says, go, into, uh, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there are no stipulations to who that is, who is included in all nations. And if there were stipulations to who is included in all nations, then maybe we could say, I'm not sure that includes infants. But I think it's just as fair to read that as saying, hey, if we're talking about all nations and it's, there are no, no restrictions in the Bible, then, then infants are included in all nations too. And then finally, and I think this is the one that's most difficult uh, when you talk in Christian circles whether infant baptism is practiced or not, is can a, can a child, can a baby believe? And I think sometimes we reduce faith to something that's a matter of the intellect. So you have to have enough life experience or enough age to understand what's happening at baptism to truly believe in, in Jesus. And uh, scripture never says that faith is a matter of the intellect. Uh, it's a matter of the soul. It's a matter of the heart. It's what God plants in us. And he can do that through the waters of baptism as easily in a child as he can in someone who is an adult and can understand more. And so uh, I can get into a lot more detail if you want to talk about that. But those are the three reasons that Lutherans have chosen uh, to baptize babies. They're included in all nations. They're sinful. Uh, and, and they too can believe. All right, let's move on. We're running short on time here. So I'd like to get to maybe two more questions yet. And I'm telling you, there are some really good ones. So hopefully we can have a chance to get to them uh, next time. Number six, kind of a good one, especially on the heels of uh, election day yesterday. How might Christians handle the in increasingly controversial role of religion in politics? All right. Um, hmm. I don't know if I should ask this question. No, I probably shouldn't. I won't. I was just going to ask who, who voted yesterday, but I'm not going to ask that because maybe that's not fair to ask. But I think you probably recognize over the course of, well, uh, the, the last several years for sure that uh, there is a, a, a definitely a, a religious aspect to the, the political world in which we live, right? an effort to do some legislating of moral issues. And obviously the Roe versus Wade decision uh, by the Supreme Court this past summer uh, got huge run in our world and probably was another one of those reasons that the name Christian doesn't always bring up the most favorite memories for everybody in the world in which we live, right? So what about us as Christians? When, when, when you think about politics and religion, how do we handle both of those things? And, and I would be happy to hear some of your experiences if there's good things that you've come up with. So Quaid is handy if you have thoughts about this. I certainly have some thoughts, but <laughs> sorry, I didn't even, that was, that was totally by accident, Quaid. <laughs> Until Delaney started laughing, I didn't even realize that I had also mentioned your last name at the same time. So any thoughts, any experience people have had with this? Art, please. I don't want to tell you how to vote, but I do want to tell you that if you don't like who wins, to pray for them. That we, the Bible encourages people to pray for your government because 
Um, God put them in there. I don't know how he did put them in there or not, but I do know that if you pray for them, maybe they might make a good decision. I, I couldn't have said it a whole lot better than that, Art. Uh, I, you know, Romans 13 certainly tells us that the authorities that exist have been established by God. 1 Timothy chapter 2 speaks about, uh, Paul says, I urge you then to, to bring prayers and intercessions to God for kings and those in authority, right? So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. This is good and pleases our God, God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So absolutely great, great advice. Um, can I say this? I, I, my my one, one caveat about all of this is I do think that, that there are some in Christian circles, I will not throw cast blame on everyone, who have sort of believed for a while now that if we just get the right people in office, then we'll be able to legislate morality. Then we'll be able to pass laws that make people do what God wants us to do according to his word. And I think what happened because of that is that it, it, it makes for lazy Christians. Because we think that maybe by going to uh, the voting booth and checking a certain box, we can get people to listen to what God says in his word because we'll make laws that force them to listen to what God says in his word. And I think our job as Christians is to focus on the souls of people and let the government care about people's bodies. And so it's the church's responsibility to teach what moral issues, how God addresses those moral issues, not have our politicians uh, put, them, put them into practice. And the borderline, the danger the, the, that, that religion and mixing religion and politics brings is that there can actually be a worship of government rather than a worship of God and worship of the right politicians that we get in office who are going to do everything that we want them to do and, and make people be just like we want them to be. And so I think separating those two things, like letting the church continue to be responsible for teaching the souls of people, letting the government continue to be responsible to take care of the, the, the people's health and, and well-being and bodies, I think is a, is a really good thing. And I know that's frustrating to Christians. If there are laws passed that don't square with what, what Christianity says, but finally, that's where our opportunity to teach the love of Jesus comes in. And, and so that's, a, that's a, a caveat, I think, in talking about how um, religion and politics aren't always the best uh, partners, I guess. All right, let's take one more and then we're going to close with a real quick hymn. I know we're a little bit over, but you guys are great listening to all of this. So number seven, what happened to the Egyptian economy after the plagues, the death of the firstborn, losing their slave labor, and the army being destroyed in the Red Sea? Did I have the wrong one? Oh, okay. I think... What? Oh, it's the question? Yeah, uh, I think it's actually a pretty easy answer. I think it was completely destroyed. As a matter of fact, in, in chapter 10 of Exodus, even before the last plague, even before the uh, children of Israel left and crossed the Red Sea and the army was drowned in the sea, here's the comment that's made in, in chapter 10. It simply says this, not one thing, green thing, remained in the fields after the locusts came. Um, I don't know if this is a little bit strong, but I, I think historically you could make the case for the fact that Egypt never recovered. Like it was never again a dominant world player like it had been for the 400 years leading up to that. I mean, once Joseph came and, and the famine came and, and everybody went to Egypt to buy food, 
I think Egypt was doing pretty well. And then after the 10 plagues, I'm not sure you could ever make the case for the fact that they, uh, they recovered from the damage that that, di that did. So a good question. And maybe a little, little, um, little thoughts there that other, other people might have. Okay, man, I was planning to get through 10 and we only got through seven, but that's okay. Uh, well, I, can you flip ahead to number nine? Because this one I can answer in two seconds. You know what I put on my paper? Seven question marks. Because I don't know. Here's the point. It could. It could, end, it could end tonight yet. It could end tomorrow. But with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. So it could be a long time yet. Uh, the point, obviously, of this question is be ready. Be ready for Jesus coming and you are ready because of the faith that you have in your Savior. All right, that's a good place to finish up. Let's have a real brief prayer as Steve's coming up and then we'll sing one last song. Heavenly Father, we know that there are lots of questions that we have from time to time about the teachings in your word, about living our Christian lives in this world. Ultimately, you have given us the, the answer that we need more than anything else. You've given us the love of our Savior, Jesus. Let that love permeate our lives, Lord, so that everything that we say and do is is part of that love is a, is a way to reflect the love that you have for us first. Give us wisdom and, and give us uh, the endurance that we need to live in this life and touch our hearts with your holy word as we continue to hear that word and help us to grow in, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.